Thank you, Marianne, for the invitation. It was really exciting to um, have Marianne call and make all of those connections. And thanks, Stephanie, for hosting us in your beautiful home. Um, so I'm excited to introduce you to Alliance for Girls and tell you a bit about the research we've been doing on girls' lived experience and all the organizations in the Bay Area that work with girls. But maybe before we start, we're going to mostly be talking about girls' empowerment and moments of power for girls and how we create those moments. So if you would humor me and close your eyes and imagine yourself or a girl you know as a girl. Keep in your mind yourself as a girl or a girl that you know. Imagine a moment when that girl felt really powerful. What did that moment look like? Was she outside? Was she inside? Is she with someone? Is she alone? How does she feel in her body when she feels powerful? So I want you to see and hold that little girl in your mind. And open your eyes and join me. And those that are willing to share, I'd love to hear your stories of who that powerful girl was for you or what made that girl feel powerful. Is anyone willing to share with the group? I know you guys already know each other, so that'll help. Okay, I'll just, this is not, I, I don't know what a good one is, but I have a feeling this is not one. <laughs> but just to break the ice, I was imagining myself, uh, you know, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, um, and I had kind of a wobbly childhood with, uh, you know, parents got divorced and a little bit messy. But when I was on my bike, tooling around the neighborhood with this like crew of friends exploring, mm -hmm. nothing could stop me. Mm. And I love, I mean, that, it was a very lovely memory that I haven't revisited, um, I don't know in how long. Mm. But it was like being on the bike with my crew in the neighborhood feeling like I own it. Mm. I love that one, thank you. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else want to share a powerful girl story? Could be you, it could be someone else. Mine is so similar to hers. Okay. When I was little and would go out to, 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 to I was like uh, six, six years old, just run out in the neighborhood to play. And at a, once it was dark, that's when my mother would call me in. But mm. in the meantime, we were playing <coughs> battle games and all different age kids. And it was just total chaos and mm. totally thrilling. And it was that feeling of early autonomy mm. and play and being outdoors and a little bit no holds bars mm. outside of any strictures. Mm. Not mm. something that my daughters have experienced very much. Mm. 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 <laughs> yeah, freedom. A lot of yeah, freedom. Crazy freedom. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Can we get one more one more story? I'll share mine. I was uh, I went to a camp in the woods when I was growing up every summer, and we used to do this uh, whole like eight hour long capture the flag game, and I just remember staring through the woods and feeling pretty invincible. Good mm. feeling. Awesome. Um, I'm only going to share one because it's not outside. So. <laughs> <laughs> of my daughter has been doing mm. debate and mm. she really um, 
And I mean, she started in seventh grade and I was thinking more like eighth, ninth grade. I don't know if that's little enough, but um, it's just when she has been the head of a committee or when she's gotten mm. a lot of guys to go along with her side, she actually sort of, she, she really has kind of thrived. She loves the negotiation of it and like the whole pattern of getting people to like embrace her side mm. of the thing. Um, and it's, I think that's a cool thing. So. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love that. I, I heard a lot about feeling powerful, feeling safe enough to be free, feeling like your body is power, which is such an amazing feeling. Um, I want to tell you guys a little bit about, about my story of power and, and how I arrived there too, uh, and that can lead us into Alliance for Girls. So uh, when I was a, a child, uh, my family really struggled with addiction, and I was eight years old when it really hit the fan and one of my parents had to leave for rehab. And the only story I was ever told about how to handle that situation was, don't tell anyone. This is shameful. This is embarrassing. Make sure you don't tell anyone. And so internally, I started to think, okay, well, I can't tell anyone. All this energy was kept inside and it ended up manifesting into this desire to be so externally perfect that no one could see how internally imperfect I felt. By 12, I had developed an eating disorder. I was a straight A kid, I was doing everything right, but inside I had so much turmoil. And I think it's a story a lot of women can relate to, the story of maybe if I'm perfect enough outside, no one can see my pain inside. And then when I was 24 years old, so many years later, I was introduced to the Alliance for Girls. Um, and it was these executive directors of girls' organizations who had come together and asked the question, how can we as organizations be more powerful together than we can be apart? And I was a community organizer at the time, so they came to me and said, you know, will you help us make this idea that we have into a reality? And in meeting them, for the first time in my life, I met these women who had taken their personal stories of pain and not only told those stories and owned those stories, but made those stories their stories of power. So I met one of the founders of Alliance for Girls, Jennifer Berger, who growing up, she had struggled with body dysmorphia. And so instead of letting that be a pain that festered inside, she started an organization that teaches young women media literacy and body positivity and how to love and own their body and see their body as sources of power. I met Marlene Sanchez, another founder of Alliance for Girls. She was a formerly incarcerated young woman. And instead of letting that experience become her pain, she became the executive director of the Young Women's Freedom Center that teaches formerly incarcerated young women to get their first job, to experience what a healthy, holistic life can look like and be able to have that job that leads you into economic independence. Um, I met Deborah Vaughn, who was a dancer growing up and was always told she wouldn't be able to do ballet, she wouldn't make it in classical dance. And so she started her own dance company. And it's a company that combines African and modern dance and teaches specifically black girls, about dance and about liberation and about freedom. And so for me, meeting these young women was, these women, <laughs> was the first time that I was able to see 
that my story that had been so painful and so secretive and such a source of um, unhappiness inside, even if no one could see it, didn't have to be that way, that I could tell my story and more importantly, I could own my power in doing that. And so what happened for me is at 24 years old, I became the founding executive director of Alliance for Girls. And I kind of stepped into what am I capable of? And I was bullied by all these women who have dedicated their life to helping young women realize their dreams. And these were the founders of Alliance for Girls. And there I was, and they were showing me how to be that leader. And I was learning in real time. Here's how you fundraise. Here's how you budget. Here's how you do it all. And they were teaching me. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like I didn't have that as a kid. I didn't have those programs or those people that were telling me your pain is your beauty and your pain is your power. But I had them at 24. And because I had those women in my life, I'm now able to live so much more freely, so much more uh, authentically, and also have really been able to step into my power um, within the Alliance for Girls. And so something that I'm really happy to do every day of my job is to make sure that every girl, and hopefully earlier than even I had, gets those moments and those people that are teaching her to step into her power, to be free, to explore without reservation, right? That's what we're trying to do in each and every one of Alliance for Girls organizations um, and Alliance for Girls as a whole. So that's just a little bit about me and what brings me here. Uh, and I want to just briefly, I'm going to briefly tell you about Alliance for Girls and then really get into the research of what's happening for girls today. Um, so Alliance for Girls is the largest alliance of girls organizations in the country. Hey, Finn. <laughs> um, He's we, a supporter. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, our mission is really to mobilize and champion girls advocates and educators so that they can address barriers facing girls, create conditions for their success, and change systems to advance gender equity for all. So that's, that's the mission. And we have 180 organizations. We partner with two school districts that includes 250 schools, 7,500 girls advocates and educators who are collectively serving 300,000 girls and young women every year. So 300,000 girls and young women who get those opportunities to explore their power freely and without reservation. Uh, so that's who Alliance for Girls is. And this is our 200 members. Uh, it's a lot of logos, but I think that you guys would recognize some of them. The Respect Institute is in here. Um, I'm sure many of you are recognizing right now several of them, and we can talk more about what they do uh, later. And quickly, we believe girls are already strong, so they only need to be stronger. Stronger girls, by listening to girls and understanding what they need, we can support stronger leaders, and by enabling stronger leaders, we can create stronger systems. So that's schools and community systems. Um, and one of the ways that we do that is we amplify girls' voices, and that's the research that we're going to go into today. We really believe girls already know what they need. We just need to listen to them and then respond. Um, this is just a little bit about our leadership development work. I'm not going to spend too long on that, because uh, I know we want to get to the research, but these are the trainings that we do 
Um, this is our Young Women's Leadership Board uh, that directs a lot of our work. Uh, we also enable collaborations, and part of the idea of collaborations is to increase the opportunities that girls have access to. So this is actually um, bossy. I don't know if this might be might resonate more in the South Bay. <laughs> they're in the South Bay, uh, but they're a soccer organization, and a lot of the girls they were realizing had body dysmorphia and had real deep body image issues. And so they actually reached out to the Alliance for Girls themselves and said, what can we do about this? Can we bring a program in or an organization in that can address this issue that girls are facing? And they ended up connecting to the Body Positive that does exactly that. And they've now integrated workshops on body positivity into their soccer camps. So every time a girl goes through soccer camp, she's also getting body positivity messaging. Um, so those are the kinds of increased opportunities that become possible through collaboration. Um, and finally, we do advocacy, budget advocacy, legislative advocacy. Again, we can talk more about that um, if you guys are interested later in the presentation. Uh, and we amplify girls' voice. That's, of course, something we care a lot about. So I want to make sure we get to the research, so I'm going to kind of skip along, and then if you guys have questions, we can always backtrack. Uh, so, uh, the research is on girls' lived experience, and again, this is around really believing girls are already strong. We just need to listen to them to understand what they need to be even stronger. And so, oh, we have another picture yourself. <laughs> we're engaging you guys here. <laughs> um, we're going to go through what girls have said. And one of the things we do try to do is have you really imagine yourself as that girl. And this is something we also do with educators, service providers. Um, so you can either write it down on a note card or hold it. Uh, if you want to pass them, you can. Uh, so we're going to go through some of the experiences girls said they've had. And you, you can write down which of the following experiences you've witnessed in your work, in your life and a response that you have to what you're hearing. Um, so that actually got skipped. So our research includes, uh, we've recently done research with 234 Sorry. girls of color. This is interviews and focus groups. This is qualitative research to supplement the quantitative that we were able to advocate that already exists. Uh, with girls from Oakland, San Francisco, and San Jose. Um, and it's youth participatory action research which means that we actually train young women to be the researchers themselves. So the young women are the ones who create the protocols, who figure out what the questions should be, who lead the focus groups, and who analyze the data. Uh, and we think that's really important. Uh, what we've found is that when girls are asking girls what's going on, the, the authenticity of answers are so much stronger. Uh, and when girls know how to ask the question, they even did things like, you know, what should the playlist be as people walk in so that they feel comfortable and they feel excited to be there? You know, so they set the, the space. Um, and that's the methodology that we use for our research. So this is high level some of the things that came out. So I want to um, read through them and again think about is any of these things you've experienced or just a one word response to it. You are 13 years old and scrolling through Instagram. You see picture after picture of all the cool girls with small waists and curvy hips and wonder if you'll ever 
be beautiful. The boy who sits behind you in class kicks the back of your chair repeatedly. Previously, you've asked the boy to stop and have told your teacher, but your teacher just tells you to ignore it. Today, you raise your voice and tell the boy to knock it off. You get sent to the office for disrupting the class. You're the only girl in your family and are responsible for completing your homework, taking care of your little brother, helping your mom cook dinner. You don't think it's fair that your older brother doesn't have to do any of these things. It's all up to you. You're taking the bus home from school. As you walk down the aisle to find a seat, a man looks up at you and asks you to smile. You ignore him and try to keep walking, but he puts his hands out and blocks your path. You look around for support, you're on a bus, but everyone is looking away. So I wanna take a moment for people to think about if they've experienced any of these things in your life, if you've experienced any of these things in your life, um, and just a one-word response you have as you're looking at these. These are all real stories that girls told us. Does anyone want to share what they wrote down or thought about? Has anyone? Yeah. I wrote okay. something down for the second and the fourth. Um, just one word. Sure. Okay. Uh, I guess for the second one, unfair. Mm. Between angry. I mean, angry and you know. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and then, do you want me to elaborate or just? And then for the fourth one, kind of unsure. Mm. Yeah, what does unsure mean? Well, I, I have other words written down too, like scared, but then also unsure, like what should I do? Like mm. nobody's here, to, nobody's like obviously looking at me to help me. Um, you know, do I, yeah. So sort what of this feeling of like, you know, what do I do? Mm. I wrote down for the first and also for the fourth. And for the first one, the word I wrote was butterfly. Mm. Because it just made me think of like, you will, you will. You, you, you will become a butterfly in whatever form that's going to be from mm. where you feel you are now. And then for the fourth one, fourth one my word was fuck off. It has a hyphen. Which is what I thought should be told to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Can we do one more? Shitty. <laughs> Shitty all together? Yeah. All four. That's yeah. all four? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the fourth, that was like typical. Um, mm. May not be the bus, it, where, you know, the boardroom, wherever mm. it's, the classroom, mm. and looking around and kind of 
what do I do next? And I just, I mean, I was imagining myself as a teen, young teen or a kid, but obviously that's still happening. Mm -hmm. And I think my reaction as an adult would be fuck off, but like as a 12 or 13 or 14 mm -hmm. or 15 year old, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say typical. We do, um, we've done this with a lot of community organizations and people that work in community organizations and that's often the response is like, I still experience this and I did experience and I do experience and that's part of what we're all going to talk about here today is how do we make sure the next generation of women don't have the same response and we're able to get to a place where this is a memory and not a constant um, yeah, that generates. Yeah, I was going to say mine's number three actually and all of those words. Mm. kind of apply to mm. that sentiment and not think what was what I felt like all of them mm -hmm. yeah so um, I'm going to go a little bit deeper into kind of what some of the deep what some of the themes were so those were very specific stories but they fall under those same themes um, so one of the themes that came out really clearly was around sexuality and social media. Um, so girls experienced low self-esteem stemming from social media and social expectations. This came out a lot. Uh, one quote, we compare ourselves. Social media instills in our head that there is only one type of beauty. Um, and another one of our reports, and I brought some of our reports here so you guys can peruse them, but um, a girl said, if you, if you don't match the standard of beauty on social media, they assume you're poor, they assume your family is disjointed. I mean, the, the depth of um, bigotry that comes with these social media standards is very, very deep. Uh, they're pressured to compete with each other and to act older than their age. Girls that are young trying to act old is because they're pushed to. If they act older, they get more respect. This is influenced by social media. And there's a lack of understanding around consent. So that speaks to, Caitlin, you were saying, unsure, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Guys do stuff to girls that they don't want to happen. To fit in, you let guys do something to you. Guys don't have permission, but they do it anyway, so they fit in with their group. There's a lot of this. Um, guys are doing stuff, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. Um, so, kind of having clearer education around uh, consent, around healthy standards of sexu healthy sexuality and what that means, um, and also explicitly how it manifests online uh, was a big piece of what came out. At home, um, at home, girls said that home life can be a paradoxical source of both stress and support. Um, so they say things like, my mom makes me food when I'm stressed. She's really supportive of me. Um, girls often said mom, their moms were their heroes, their number one hero. Uh, but then they also talked about how either parental fighting can be a big source of stress, um, but also family toxic gender norms can be a major source of stress. So things like, why are you doing your homework when your brother is clearly hungry, you need to be cooking? Or what do you think you're gonna really get from all this homework? You need to be finding 
a boyfriend. Um, they also said that for young mothers, there's a specific amount of stigma for the young mothers in their own family. So the withdrawal of family support once you become a young mother impacts the young mother's well-being and well-being of their child. So it becomes intergenerational. I don't get a lot of support from my family. I get mistreated by relatives. I have no one to talk to about my child. And again, they talked about being the primary child care um, people, primary responsibility for household chores, uh, which also led to a lot of toxic stress. So a lot of what we heard too is like, I need mental health support. This is a lot to hold. Um, I'm trying to fend for my safety and I have all this pressure at home uh, to be a very specific way. And as soon as you leave that very specific way, you risk losing support from your family, which because they're also often a primary source of support can be particularly scary. <clears throat> at school, so girls said, School can be unsafe, disempowering. This feeling came from experiencing race and gender-based discrimination from educators and peers at school. Um, so, quote, in class one time, a boy was being really bad and having a fight with another boy, and the teacher just gave him a reflection. When a girl got mad, she had to go to the office. So this is very much um, also a part of a national dialogue and a lot of deep research has been done around um, gender norms and how people expect uh, girls to act and then uh, specifically if white boys is the norm, the further you, uh, the further away you are from that, the more you are disciplined for that. So if you are outside what they think the norm of what a girl should be, you get increasingly punished, you get increasingly um, called out in a way that boys might be doing the same thing are not being called out. Um, girls of color also spoke to being disproportionately dress coded as compared to both boys and white female friends. <coughs> Some white girl is wearing underwear to school and maybe a Latina is wearing the same thing. Who is going to get dress coded? The Latina girl. The admin school administration drives by we have golf carts at our school and tells them, the Latina girl, to go to the office. The other girl, the white girl, is just standing there wearing the same thing. That their teachers and staff are <coughs> ill-equipped to support their needs. Um, so sometimes it's something like teachers being fired. Other times it's things like teachers not understanding what's happening for them on social media. Um, not having training around disproportionate discipline, the biases they might hold against particularly girls of color and with disproportionate discipline it's uh, specifically impacted uh, for black girls. So not having bias training to stop those actions before they start uh, is also how they feel that teachers are ill-equipped to support them. Uh, and then finally in community. Girls said they experienced sexual harassment in public spaces, especially while riding trans public transportation. I made the mistake of sitting in the back of BART. This grown, buff man sat behind me. I got off on San Bruno. He gets off too. I started walking. He was following me. I stopped and he stopped. I walked into my best friend's house. He followed me. I had to shut the door on him. It's also a lot of... Um, 
people harassing and then other people not doing anything about it. Uh, the onlookers pretended as if they did not hear or see the harassment. And finally, they often spoke to feeling unsafe in their neighborhoods due to gun violence and drug use. In my neighborhood, there are a lot of people that do drugs. I usually have to take the trash out and I don't want to go outside alone even though there's a gate. I still feel scared to be in my neighborhood. Um, girls also spoke a lot too. It makes me think because a lot of the stories of empowerment were um, stories of being free. A lot of girls spoke to how parents in response to this reality really lock down their girls in a way that they might not be doing for their sons. So they say like the minute you get these schools out you have to be home. I don't want anything happening in between. If school gets out at 3.15, you have to be home by 3.25, and there's nothing you can do in the middle um, in between those times. And so there's a lot of feeling of being kind of imprisoned um, by parents trying to protect their safety, yeah. but feeling very imprisoned by that reality. Um, girls also talked about sources of support. So they talked about female friends being a big source of support. Um, they talk about female family members, like I said. I go to my mother, she helps me, she's patient, she listens. I talk to my cousin because she goes to the same school and we have classes together. When someone calls me ugly, I tell her and she has my back. They also talk about the power of case managers and community organization staff. The people you work with, you get to know them and you go there to talk about and get support with heavy topics. Staff at Oasis for Girls, which is one of our members, will make time for you. She connects with you in a personal way so you're able to open up about anything. And this came up over and over again. Girls spoke to how powerful it is when they are in safe spaces with only girls and how they're able to go through all that they've experienced throughout the day with someone who can guide them in understanding not only what they've experienced but what some of the systemic reasons behind that might be and even better actions they can take to change it. Um, so they often spoke to the importance of that in their lives. Uh, and again, you know, I want to say it's, it's a lot to, to hold, all the things that girls are going through, but it's important to remember there's also a lot of really incredible solutions out there uh, that are dramatically improving girls' lives and creating those opportunities for girls to take, again, stories of pain and make them into stories of power and empowerment. Um, and so just as an example, you know, we talked about body dysmorphia, about FACE as an organization that supports body positivity. Um, we talked about lack of support for young mothers. Teen Success is an incredible organization that is helping young mothers graduate from high school, get the support they need so they can in turn support their own child. Um, and of course you guys know the Respect Institute, which supports with a lot of the biases experienced in school by teachers. Um, so, yeah, one of, one of the things that we often do uh, in community, and I feel like we've done a lot of writing, but we ask people to um, do a pledge of something that they will do. Maybe yours will be, you will give to a girls organization. <laughs> um, but a pledge of something that they're gonna do uh, for girls and young women of color in the Bay Area. And this is particularly important too when we're working with um, our school partners. Um, a lot of times to say, what are you going to do as a restorative justice facilitator? What are you going to do as a teacher actively to ensure that you're meeting the needs of girls? 
so that's just a little bit about our research. I mostly wanted this to be able to be a conversation. Uh, as you can see, we have many reports that were fed into this, and we've talked to 234 girls. There's a lot more we could say, and also um, I've been doing this work for a long time, so I know a lot about the solutions and could talk more about that too. Uh, but I did want to end with a quote. If one man can destroy everything, why can't one girl change it? And that's Malala, uh, who's an inspiration to us all. So, yeah, do people have questions? Is there anything I can illuminate more? Does your organization represent global organizations or all local or is national? Or yeah, what's, what's, yeah. What's so we're in California. Mm -hmm. um, our members, <coughs> we do have some that have global reach, like Rise Up. Mm -hmm. um, but they have local chapters. I see. It needs to be local. For it, it has to, to have local presence. I see. So some of them have, like, their chapter is here, and then they have global or national reach, but they have to have a local presence, yeah. I, I'm curious just in terms of, like, your... Um, it feels like all, a lot of the global stuff around girls' empowerment is also saying it's like a tipping point for changing the whole society and then there's all mm. research that if you fund girls girl. education in a small community yeah. in Africa then mm -hmm. it leads to all these other th mm -hmm. outcomes mm -hmm. do you guys do that same kind of calculation or is mm -hmm. it it feels really different in this environment yeah that's a really good question um do we do that same messaging around if you invest in a girl? I mean, yes, I think part of the messaging is definitely if you invest in women and girls, you invest in communities. I think that that's a mm -hmm. message that's been adopted. I'm not sure we have the same level of research mm -hmm. that they've been able to do yeah, right, around right. like actually quantitatively tracking mm -hmm. how much money is how you know, gained by a community else, yeah. because of that. Uh, it would be great to mm -hmm. do that. I think we talk more about um, girls' impact as leaders and what they're able to achieve, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, we also talk about the impact of gender toxicity and how that hurts all young people. That's mm -hmm. definitely something that, when, especially when we go to the schools mm -hmm. and ask them to partner with us, we talk about how um, the issues that are impacting girls impact everyone. And one example of that, I kind of skipped over some of our <coughs> programmatic work, but um, we partnered with Oakland Unified School District to look at what solutions can be to some of these issues. And um, one of the things we ended up doing is a new sexual harassment policy for the district that directly responds to what girls are saying is happening. And it's a really a policy that was developed um, in partnership with Equal Rights Advocates. So we had lawyers on board, but also with community organizations and girls. Uh, and one of the things we ended up doing is a focus group with boys. Mm. And we talked to boys about, like, how does this issue impact your daily experience in school? And there was one story uh, that I think illuminated it so well, which is not to say everyone can be a victim of sexual harassment, but one boy said, well, here's how I've experienced it. My sister, in Oakland, one of the things we found is there's also a tradition called slap Ask Fridays, uh, where every Friday, um, male students, and actually female students too, uh, slap the asses of female students. Uh, and it, it is as young as third and fourth grade, and we had stories from girls literally saying, 
Uh, I spent my entire lunch period with my back against a wall so that no one can slap my butt, uh, which is the opposite of freedom. <laughs> um, and this boy said, well, so my sister is in middle school. This one kid like kept slapping her butt and harassing her and slapping her butt, and no one was doing anything about it. We hear that a lot, right? Like, who are the people doing anything about these instances of harassment? No one was doing anything about it. So I said, well, forget it. I'm going to go do something about it. This kid's in high school. He goes to his sister's middle school and basically beats up the boy. Now he is, you know, expelled from school or you know, suspended from school for beating up another student. And so the cycle of violence continues, right? And this disciplinary actions that can lead to prison and that is only heightened by this situation. So we, we try to draw lines like that too and really showing that violence against girls or um, hyper-masculinity and hyper-masculine contexts mm -hmm. impacts everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think less directly as it has been done in the international field. That's also because there's a lot less philanthropic dollars that go domestically as opposed to internationally mm -hmm. in the girls' field. So domestically, 4% of total philanthropic dollars go to women and girls. And internationally, it's still abysmal, but it's 9%. <laughs> both are terrible. They could both be, you know, 50 to 60%. Uh, but it's also, there's even less money here um, than there is going internationally. Yeah. When you say that, does that mean, what, I mean, I'm sorry, what is the other 56%? They're just gender neutral or they're like yeah so these are things that explicitly are looking at the needs of women and girls yeah so like when we in our meeting that we had last week uh, we were talking about international girls education or learning about it and it seemed very um, you know the, the message that we were getting was that well a lot has been done in getting girls into school and now it's all about the quality of the education that they're getting at school like are they actually learning anything which is similar to what we heard two years ago when mm. we were looking at this topic um, but it sounds like what you're hearing in your research really is not about the like the academic education that people yeah. that girls are getting it's really about the conditions in yeah. which you're free to learn yeah right so like a lot of those things about harassment, safe, emotional safety, uh, body image, all of those stressors are all things which make it hard to learn because if exactly. you draw a picture of the girl's brain, how much of it is, it's, is taken up with def being defensive in some yeah. way, right? So I think that's, that's I'm trying accurate. to think about as we look towards what kind of organizations we might look at, then like I'm curious to know like what solutions do you see that then are there any solutions that you see that specifically address how to uh, create the conditions in which girls can actually be free to learn and like mm -hmm. not have to think about all this other stuff? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we often say policy, practice, program. So um, at a policy level, I think it does really matter for setting the infrastructure of these systems in which girls are trying to learn. So for instance, again, in Oakland Unified, and I can give a different school district next time, but you know, they, what we found, we were hearing so much about girls' sexual harassment, girls' sexual harassment, and we looked and their policy was like so deeply outdated, impossible to find, 
like had language that if you're not a lawyer sounded really problematic. Like if you did it, you'll get punished. But if you report and it was a lie, you'll also get punished. And that is always true, but it's not usually called out in policies. Um, so there was a lot there that were like the policy itself was indicative of the culture mm -hmm. of the school. And so changing that policy was an important first step. So again, like I said, one of our lead members on that was Equal Rights Advocates, working in partnership with girls and community organizations, like really looking at the structures um, around these issues is important. Similarly in San Francisco Unified School District, um, one of the things we're looking at there is explicitly social media and how do you integrate social media training systemically uh, as a part of the ongoing curriculum in San Francisco Unified. So there's that piece. Practice, I think, is really important, and that's like Respect Institute is one of those organizations, but looking at how we equip educators or service providers to really understand what girls are going through today, get into their lived experience, because I think a lot of times what we find is this like finger-wagging assumption way of interacting with girls, um, and then training them on how to kind of deconstruct a lot of those biases. And then finally, I think program is the other really important piece. You know, like, a lot of what girls said is the toxic stress is killing me. You know, it's like, yes, we need to stop this environment in which I'm in, but also in the meantime, I just need somewhere that I can, like, be safe for an hour in my day, at least, and just decompress for an hour. Girls literally said things like, this is the only place that I can breathe. Like, this is the place that I breathe. You know, so I think having those safe spaces and increasing access for girls that really like every girl has at least one place that can help her understand everything that's happening and also like decompress from it um, is another important piece. And, and I saw on the list content like WAM is an organization mm -hmm. that I know that is yeah. all about women in music and so it's also like spaces where people can, totally. where girls can find their passion, which I think for education is so important. And, and mm -hmm. they do an amazing job of giving women opportunities to learn about how to be producers of music and just learn the technology of it that is so hard to do. Mm -hmm. And that makes, you know, facilitates education in, in, in their entire lives because you, mm -hmm. you've found a place where you're safe and you're excited. There's a few others on there. Well, a lot fun. of our members actually yeah. would fall under that category. Yeah. Um, because a lot of them are teaching skills in a safe environment. So it's like a both and. They're both getting this like safe space where they can decompress and learn and understand their unique experiences and find a passion. Um, I think what's also great about Women's Audio Mission and some of those other culture-shifting organizations is part of it is about shifting culture and raising awareness. Right? Like raising awareness is a really important thing. I often say, with Alliance Girls, a lot of our advocacy ends up being just getting to the table because once we're at the table with a superintendent or you know a legislator and explain to them what's happening, they're often like, oh, oh no, we definitely need to do something about that. <laughs> you know, so it's less, but sometimes the awareness just isn't even there. They don't know or like one of our advocacy um, programs was with the San Francisco Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families and when it happened, this was, oh my gosh, like seven years ago, uh, they basically had cut every single girls program in San Francisco from their budget in a time when their budget was actually increasing. 
And we went to go meet with the director of the Department of Children and Their Families and basically said, what's going on here? Like, why did every single girls program get cut? And she was like, oh, oh, I have no idea every girls program we've gotten cut. Like, we weren't even looking at gender explicitly, so we didn't even know that that had happened. But now that you're bringing it to my attention, she immediately refunded $350,000. So a lot of these programs that were going to completely close were able to stay open. And we worked with her to redo the way that that department does funding proposals. So they now do girls-only focus groups um, and boys-only focus groups as part of their research and how to create the fund instead of everything being co-ed. And what that ended up doing is, lo and behold, they found a lot of girl-specific issues that needed to be drawn out. And this last funding cycle, they allocated $30 million to girls' programs. Um, so it really like, goes to show, it was just a matter of like raising awareness. Like, oh, oh, and all I have to do is have girl-specific focus groups and boy-specific instead of everything being co-ed, because girls might not tell mm -hmm. their unique stories in that context. And then she did it, you know, it didn't even take that much to get her to do it. And a lot of times it is that. It's like, can we just raise awareness? And so also like culture shifting organizations like Women's Audio Mission or Career Girls or um, some of the other like uh, music and media, Global Girl Media, like they're really important too because they're just re lifting and raising awareness so people know what's happening. So one of the other themes of the international um, discussion that we have is around teaching life skills. Yeah, it's not just doesn't it just certainly applies there as well because up until now it's just been kind of rote academics. Now they're like, well, they actually have to learn how to apply this to real life. Yeah, um, and I see several like leadership kind of themes. Like, do you feel like that weaves into some of these programs as well? Um, what, what do you mean by life skills exactly? Like how to not just learn in school, but also like be successful in like career and life. Oh, or like job skills or how to interview yeah. and, yeah. you know. Resilience. Like, yeah. yeah. Leadership. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. I think social emotional learning is a really big piece. Mm -hmm. um, and leadership is definitely woven into like basically every single one of these organizations. Uh, I know that one of our organizations used to call it life skills and actually changed the framing. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that there's a desire to make it more like a leadership development framework. Mm -hmm. Like, we want them to... Yeah. Um, but I think social-emotional learning, and like I said, mental health, toxic stress, that piece, every single one of our members, when we talk to them about it too, is like, mm -hmm. mental health, mental health, mental health. <laughs> Girls are really suffering. And, it, and that's across the board, which is interesting too, because our members serve such a wide variety and of demographics of girls, and it's pretty much across the board in different ways. Girls are suffering from toxic stress and mental health. And do you feel like um, it's worse than it was a decade or two ago when social, like even a decade ago when social media wasn't as prevalent? I don't, I don't know. Significant? I mean, because the themes seem are similar, right? I mean, like yeah. that issue's been around for a long, long time and mm -hmm. things like that, but is it worse now? I don't know. I do know that there was more um, of a sense from girls of the adults in my life don't understand my social media life, mm -hmm. and it makes it really hard to <coughs> trust them or to 
feel like anyone's helping me navigate this world. Like, a lot of, the teachers don't understand, my parents don't understand, like, no one really understands what's happening, and it's a huge part of my life, and it's interwoven into the way that I live life, but it's seen as siloed by adults, and that felt really disjointed. Um, and so I think in a way, maybe, making sure that body positive work is, is always incorporating that would be important because it's kind of a new manifestation that needs to be understood now if the issue is going to be addressed at all. Um, can you give a quick example of a specific curriculum that is working, that works well? On like what does a curriculum look like in direction. any of these programs? Like what are the headlines of what they're learning? Or what's sure. the curriculum? Like what do they actually? Yeah, like well, I guess I could do. Um, about face, just because I'm thinking about body stuff, but we can, sure. you could choose another just one. A, you can make it brief. Yeah, yeah but I think, like, one of the things about face teaches that's really important, and again, it speaks to, like, the girls' lived experience. It's not coming at them and being like, so what's wrong with this picture? Like, you, you know, it's more, what do you see, building their analytical skills to be able to say, what do you see, what do you think that might be about, helping them explore it and kind of just self-discover over how, what's the time frame? Is this like a school year? About face, like I think sessions? that their curriculum is, gosh, it can be anywhere from like a one workshop, but obviously oh, that's limited okay. in mm -hmm. impact, to like a semester. So I think they do different levels depending on what they're able to do. And it's the same for boys? They don't do a boys one. They don't do. Mm -hmm. What would a boys curriculum look like? One Circle Foundation has a really strong boys curriculum. Um, they do like healing circles, and so it's very peer led, and it's really like they create discussion prompts. So like they each have a talking stick, so they have like a certain way that they teach peers to facilitate conversations, and then they provide prompts, and the prompts build on one another. So like first you talk about this issue, then you move to this issue, and it's all kind of laid out. Um, and they're able to, in that way, guide themselves through kind of like all the different experiences they may be having. Yeah, that's and so they do that, that's one circle, and they do that with girls and boys. Mm -hmm. And they're actually developing gender non-conforming uh, curriculum as well. Um, do, in the research that you've done, have you seen any differences um, between the research in Oakland, San Francisco, and in the South Bay? Because I know that you've done research in all three districts, or yeah. are you seeing the same themes throughout? That's a good question. Um, there have been some differences, and um, like, for instance, a lot of the uh, teen mom issues and uh, explicitly exclusion of teen moms came out in the South Bay, but that was also, we had more focus groups on that over there. In San Francisco, there was a lot around immigrant experience. Um, that came out really, really dramatically. And uh, conflict between not only like white girls and immigrant girls, but black girls, immigrant girls, white girls, and how that was all manifesting was very intense. And immigrant girls specifically spoke to like, you know, because I don't speak the language or I'm having trouble with the language, they think I'm dumb. Um, People don't understand me or understand where I'm coming from. They're not asking me, you know. There was also a lot around, especially in San Francisco, around um, 
stereotypes faced by Asian immigrants and kind of coming into conflict with this model minority myth of like, you don't need help and then I'm not getting help because of that and they actually really do need help. Um, and sometimes a conflict between uh, parents who are saying like, I want you to be a doctor or a lawyer and they're like, that's nice, but I'm going to school and no one's helping me and I don't know how to get there. So like, how is that supposed to manifest? That came out really strongly in San Francisco. In Oakland, um, the unique experiences of black girls came very strong in terms of like really explicit bias experienced by peers and teachers against like anti-blackness, um, disproportionate discipline, uh, and also a lot around black girls trying to um, understand their role in the in the overall black uh, excellence movement that's in Oakland. So there's a lot around like yeah. the African American Male Achievement Initiative and stuff like that, and then being like, "That's cool. What do the girls get?" Like, you know, there's this, and this is really powerful in Oakland. But like, where do I fit? Um, so there's, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. So those were kind of experiences that yeah. came out strongly. And obviously, South Bay is also very heavily Latina, um, and so a lot of that was like some of the unique things that are experienced by Latina girls out there. Um, you know, in, in the South Bay, the majority in juvenile justice are Latina versus like in Alameda County, the majority are black. So there was, you know, differences in that way too. So I'm hearing the need for safety and allies and all that, but I'm also curious what you, what you see as the need for positive co-ed experiences. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's tied to safety. Can you actually, can you ask it again? Well, I'm thinking of Playworks, of course, and yeah. there are other places where girls and boys are in the same place. Yeah. And can they learn together, to, you know, to have Oh, I see what you're saying. Because I was saying when you have a moment of just girls that can feel safe, and you're saying, what yeah. about safety in co-ed? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the main thing girls want, is like, they want to feel safe in co-ed. Um, and I do think there's multiple components of that. It's like, one, it needs to be modeled at the top. So a lot of times it's like, the policies and you mean like at the presidential level? Sorry. We were having such a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants more wine? <laughs> um, or the or even like, you know, as local as the district level or even like the executive level of an organization. You know, I think kids are looking up and the culture is set at the top, and so it's really important that we not ignore that. Um, and kids obviously are very astute, and so they see what's happening. And even within our own um, field, and I say that as you know, nonprofit field, like making sure that we're modeling equity at the top helps to create equity amongst kids. Um, I also think teaching girls to self-advocate matters. Like. It is important that girls, like the unsure, you know, like it does help when a girl is sure. And then the other piece is, I think, what you were speaking to, which is like, how do we educate boys too? And educate gender nonconforming people. Like, how do we all be educated around what safety means and our unique experiences? And part of it is understanding. That's why I think it's so important that we just understand where each other are coming from, because it helps in knowing what your impact might be when you do something. So I think it's kind of like all of those pieces uh, help to create safer environments in co-ed, which is incredibly important. And I think ultimately what girls are really looking for. So like you've, you've touched on uh, this already, but um, 
a little while back, you said, if we wanted you to talk about what some of the solutions are, and you yeah. talked about, I mean, in a lot of your answers, you've mm-hmm. talked about that, but like if you're, if you're sitting down to say, these are like the top three solutions that I think are most important in this moment, right now, in the culture that we're in today, like, is there something like that for you? Because the, yeah. like I look at I look at the slide with all these different people doing all different things from all different angles, mm-hmm. and I think okay, so if you if you only if you only can do a few things, like what are the key solutions? Yeah, I mean I think listening. To, I guess I have two answers to it. One is listening to girls. There were definitely some things that came out strong. You know, like I do think violence against girls is something that needs to be addressed, and I think violence is not only physical but can also be cultural um, and like a part of this toxic culture they're living in. I do think that it, like every time we talk to girls it comes up um, and is such a prominent part of their experience and uh, it's, safety is such a critical part of leadership development. Um, I do also think this piece around like mental health and supporting girls in the toxic stress environment that they are currently in um, and, and what's so important about that, too, is almost every organization we talk to, like whether it's like, not to call it specific, but I will, like San Francisco Girls Chorus, you know, or like Young Women's Freedom Center. One is like formerly incarcerated young women, and one is like, you know, mostly privileged girls, you know. Both are experiencing extreme mental health and toxic stress issues, and it's like, it's so across the board. Um, which I think makes it a really compelling piece of the puzzle. Um, and then I also think like leadership development uh, and making sure that people, girls are able to find their passions and like engage with the things that they love is really important. You know, I don't know if that's like what life skills equivalent is in our sector. We don't really use life skills language, um, but definitely like we would probably call it like leadership development. Um, 